Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. Now, this is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's a fresh chapter. Well, it is a fresh chapter, but it is a first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, and thriller genre. Today's featured release is Second Turn by J.M. Adams. All right, let us jump right into chapter one. September 10th, 2012, Mediterranean Sea, North Africa. A heavy breeze rolls off the Mediterranean Sea, pushing away the stench of the city slowly dying around me. The deep, salty air offers a snippet of comfort, although I have no idea why. There are no childhood memories of the sea. I grew up in western Colorado and southwestern Virginia. Maybe it's the brief respite from the taint of chemicals and human waste that's embedded itself into the pores of this city. I feel like I'm constantly gagging on smoke from an unseen forest fire that raged in Colorado when I was a kid. The buildings around me are pockmarked with bullet holes. Sandbags stand watch in front of every entrance with piles of rubble towering from 30 to 50 feet high. This place is a giant landfill waiting to fall into the sea. I walk another block and come across a building that looks like something took a mammoth crescent-shaped bite out of it. Rebar splinters off in several directions like webs constructed by a giant spider. There's no way to underscore the toll of human suffering here. My line of sight follows another tower of rubble going up to the second floor where a little kitchen comes into view. On the left side of the room, there's a vibrant yellow wallpaper, a Roman numeral wall clock, and a table topped with a bright floral Parisian table runner. On the right, the walls are stained with blood and black scorch marks. There are more weapons than food in this cursed city, and the reminders are everywhere. Western leaders continue to fool themselves into believing that the death of Muammar Gaddafi would have brought some semblance of sanity or stability to this region. The brothers' leader's 40-year reign of terror against his people might have ended, but death and chaos ruled this city with an iron hand. Libya is a slave to its violent history, and no one is looking for a way out. But what do I know? I'm just a covert foot soldier for the American Department of Defense. I can't begin to understand why Washington believes that, with Gaddafi gone, it's nothing but butterscotch and ponies here in North Africa. I have a wake-up call to deliver to my superiors that may realign some of that thinking, but only if I can make it to the CIA installation in one piece. I've been collecting intel for the past two months, posing as an English teacher for a wealthy family living in the chateau in Derma. Derna was a perfect place for undercover work. The charming Libyan port city is about 200 miles east of Benghazi and doesn't begin to fit in with the rest of Libya. It's one of the wealthiest areas in the country, a quaint little town nestled in beautiful green mountains, rich with exotic sea cliffs and waterfalls. Two days ago, I obtained information that forced me to blow my cover and run. There was no way to securely transmit the sensitive information I've gathered without landing in a cell never to be seen again. My pickup time is slated for the conclusion of Muslim call to prayer. The prayer is the first of the five daily Muslim prayers broadcast from speakers atop mosques that are still standing around the city. They stick to a strict schedule, and this morning's devotional is set for 4.58 a.m., the true dawn, although the sun won't rise until 6.30 this morning. 
I emerge from the shadows of a long abandoned Mugazi cathedral. It's ironic that one of the most prominent structures in this old Muslim city is a decaying Roman Catholic church. I have little time to get to the parking lot at the 7th of October hospital without drawing attention to myself. Good luck with that, I laugh out loud. Hopefully my baggy clothes, hat, and short haircut can fool anyone who doesn't get too close. I pull the wide brim of my camouflage bucket hat lower to cover more of my face. My oversized camo jacket is untucked over a dark t-shirt hanging over black jeans. The street is still deserted as I execute what I like to call my husky man walk. I admit an audible sigh of relief rounding the corner of the burned out Hamzawi Cafe. I'm less than 100 yards away from the hospital and I have a straight shot to my destination where I can hole up until my ride arrives. At the same time, two militiamen turn the corner and are coming my way. So much for a smooth escape. Why aren't they preparing for morning prayers? I ease my Cressy finisher knife into my right hand, spinning the blade backwards against my forearm to keep it out of sight. The sharp pinprick of the blade against my skin provides some small comfort. The knife is specifically designed for underwater hunting, but it's always done the job for me. Five inches long with a deadly stiletto tip. I have zero interest in any confrontation, but that pipe dream is starting to evaporate. Greetings I call out in my practice husky man voice, trying to sound friendly, in a, but in a hurry. Thankfully, both of their AK-47s remain hung to their backs. The guy on the left is slightly built with a camo hat that looks a little like mine. He's not paying any attention, but the bigger man closer to me answers with a slight edge to his reply. His eyes are alert and suspicious underneath bushy caterpillar eyebrows and a tangled mane of black facial hair. I try to politely pass them on the right when the hairy man lashes out seizing my shoulder and reaching for a compact revolver in his belt. I wonder what prompted him to grab me and at the same time I plunge the length of my blade deep into the, his armpit underneath his outstretched arm. His eyes pop wide open in horror. He grunts in confusion as I turn the blade twice before yanking it out of his body and jabbing two explosive thrusts deep into his throat. Blood erupts from the neck wound, covering my hands as I step forward to his companion, who is in the clumsy process of unslinging his rifle. I dispatched him quickly with the sweeping arc of my blade and survey the area for witnesses. I'm just lucky that this unfortunate incident took place in the cover of darkness. We are the only people on the street and our encounter made very little noise. The entire altercation took less than 10 seconds. My arms are covered in bright red arterial blood with one of the men gurgling bubbles from his open net wound up at my feet. I lean down and try to leave as much of the mess as I can on his jacket. I switch jackets with my second victim as the loudspeakers crackle to life around the city, single, signaling the start of morning prayers. Any sane person would want to sprint from the scene, but my training forces me to walk casually away from the dead men lying in the street. I walk into the hospital parking lot. There's a black Mercedes. The plate matches the numbers I was expecting as I throw open the passenger's door and slam it behind me. That's a good way to get shot, says a smiling driver in place of a greeting, his hand resting on a Glock 19 in his lap. He studies me with open curiosity. If you don't want company, you should probably keep your doors locked in a neighborhood like this, I answer. Jesus, he asks, 
voice rising in concern as he stares at the blood-soaked jacket on my lap. You hit? It's not mine, I say quietly. I had a run-in a couple, with a couple of locals around the block. A run-in? You're covered in blood, he says. I nod. Those two militia dudes? Big shaggy guy? I nod my head again. We need to get out of here, he says. Better wait till prayers are over, I answer. We shouldn't be on the streets during prayers. Muhammad will have to see his way past our sins, he says, slamming the car into gear and pulling out into the empty street. I'm Deckard, by the way. Welcome to Benghazi. I nod, scanning the streets for anything out of place. There's wipes in the glove box, he says. You should clean up the best you can. We should be back at the ranch in 15 to 30, depending on roadblocks. You sure you're okay? I reach for the wipes as a violent cough escapes my lips. The worst thing about Benghazi isn't the people waving guns. It's the never-ending cloud of macabre dust that dominates the air here. North Africa is hot. The air is thick. And it's only rained once since I got here two months ago. A ball of water appears in front of my face and I suck it down in two gulps. The station chief told me to look for a seasoned operative, he says. You don't look old enough to drink. Are you Langley? Everyone else here is. Langley is shorthand for CIA. I wonder if he's going to prattle on all the way to the station. Something like that, I say. So what should I call you, he asks, with a twinkle in his eye. Jane the Ripper? Jack is fine, I chirp back. Got another water? You don't look like any Jack I've ever met. Anyway, the station chief has a hard-on for you already, he said, handing me another water. Says you're compromising the agency's mission in Benghazi, and you shouldn't be coming in at all. I lean back and close my eyes. The last thing I need now is some sad little station chief crying to me about his little scythe of turf in the desert. I need to talk to Washington and get the American ambassador out of Libya, or at least stop him from coming to Benghazi. All right, that is the first chapter of Second Term by J.M. Adams. So let's learn a little bit more about our author. J.M. Adams has more than 15 years of on-air television journalism experience, reporting for CBS and Embassy News affiliates across the U.S. Highlights from his career include sea patrols with the Navy after the 9-11 attacks and reporting on location from Kuwait, Iraq, and a number of hurricane disaster zones across the country. Adams was briefly detained in East Germany during the fall of the Berlin Wall. Second term is his debut novel. He lives in northern New Jersey with his wife, two daughters, and a pair of cavachons who appear to have taken over the house. It's nice to know that pets take over other people's houses and not just ours. Alrighty, so here's my review. Second term is a political thriller. Cora Walker represents the best of U.S. intelligence and skills. 16 years after leading a campaign to protect the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi, Libya, which is what you just heard the start of, she's pressed into action again. This time, Cora is defending the Capitol and the Speaker of the House against a homegrown attack. Bottom line, second term is for you if you love tense political thrillers built from today's headlines. All right, so what are the strengths of the story? Story is told in three parts. The first is the 2012 invasion of the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. The second is the 2028, so just a little bit in the future, post-presidential election, and it sets the scene for Cora as a press secretary to the Speaker of the House. The third part is in January 2029, 
and it's the chaos accompanying a president who does not want to step down for a transfer of power. So the first thing that pops out about this story is the intensity. Adams doesn't waste words as he builds the worlds both in Libya and in Washington, D.C. We see both worlds through the eyes of an efficient and no-nonsense Cora Walker. And the intensity really drives the pacing, and for me, it kept the pages turning. The texture to this book is notable, and you really got a dose of that in the first chapter here. J.M. Adams takes us to places that he's not only been, um, but you know he's really lived and worked in. And it's not just through the visual description, but through the description of the sounds and the smells. It adds a layer to the scene making that makes them richer and more real. And honestly, you don't even notice that that type of thing is missing, maybe in other thrillers or other stories, until you really see it here and it's like, I can, I can feel that place. Cora Walker is a strong character. She acts independently and according to her moral code, um, she, I'm sorry, the things that she does engaging the enemy places her with other elite fictional agents like Jack Reacher and Jason Bourne. She is a fun hero to cheer on. Where the story fell short of ideal? Well, it's not really short of ideal, but readers are either going to love or going to hate how the main story presents a sadly easy to imagine attack on U.S. democracy by an egomaniac president who can't accept losing and attacks everyone and everything in an effort to win. Um, after I wrote my review, I did read a few reviews online, and it seemed to be that people were split. Either they were, you know, I am so sick of hearing about this that I don't want it in my fiction, or it really touches base with sort of this moral outrage and how we can't just be complicit in accepting that the more outrageous things that leaders do, that it's, that it's okay. I will say that thrillers are one of the hardest genres to resolve the storylines without breaking the logic. Um, you know, so many times when I'll do these, I'll say, wow, you know, I get to the end and I look back and it really works. And um, thrillers are definitely one of the hardest. The Benghazi storyline that JM writes here is really tight and it stands up really well. When you get to the end of that first section, you look back and bam, 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 it's like dominoes falling down. Everything works nice and neat. I would have liked a bit more detail on what happened in Benghazi, but that's definitely a personal preference and doesn't take it all away from the way the author chose to end that section. For parts two and three, Cora acted true to her character and I didn't find any flaws in her decision making. And by flaws, again, I mean things that were inconsistent with the character that she was. I did take some issues with the actions of other characters in the developing the situation around Cora, the one that she had to fight out of. If you can get past those and or focus on Cora, I think you'll enjoy and find this is one heck of a ride. So that's my review of Second Term. Second Term, oh, I think I forgot to tell you. Yep, I had to scroll up. So Second Term was released in October from Ocean View Publishing and is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours. It's available from all book retailers. I'll put a link to the Amazon in the show notes. It is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours, who represents a network of 300 plus bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, Miller, Miller, <laughs> crime, mystery, and thriller. Okay, somebody needs some coffee, even though it is not morning. Um, founded in 2011, PICT 
offers virtual book tour services for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out in their careers. PICT prides itself on tailoring packages for authors with a personal touch from their tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. A link is in the show notes, and again, I highly recommend them. Uh, Gina and her team do a wonderful job both crafting the tours and really getting your word out there. So that wraps us up. Join us next, next week for Mysteries to Die For, Season 6, Things That Go Jack of the Night. It's Episode 11, The Crackpot's Jackpot, by me, T.G. Wolf. We are back in Cleveland and the late 1800s, where a jackpot is the featured jack. With that, thank you all for listening, and Jack, go ahead and take us out.